thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis, and we're still in chapter 1. And uh, I'm afraid tonight we won't be making much headway. We're going to cover verse 26 and half of verse 27. And it's not going to get any better for quite some time. Uh, the, good, the good thing, though, is that once we're past these seminal chapters at the beginning, we can speed it up. Uh, when we hit some of the other stories. Not that they are less richer, but uh, it's easier to um, kind of speed it up compared to what we're dealing with here. Verse 26, chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. I'll cover male and female next week. Uh, We will be spending next week pretty much on just that, male and female. But tonight we're going to speak about the creation of man. And the very first thing we're going to do, as we've been doing so far, is to put it in context. As I've been pointing out to you, this text was not written in a vacuum. It wasn't written to communicate to us all the truths of God. It was written in a polemical context by a nation under attack in an environment that was hostile to them in Babylon. And just as we have seen prior in the creation of the stars, the sun, the moon and everything natural, that the intent of the text was to um, showcase that there are no hidden spirits moving things in nature, that the stars, the sun, and the moon are not divinities or deities, but just natural elements. So is the case here with this language being used, that of image, image and likeness. Those were not words that were used... um, um, randomly, they have a specific context, and I think we do well to understand that. As I mentioned to you a couple of times, uh, creation of people in an ancient world, especially in a Babylonian myth of creation, the Enuma Elish, uh, mentioned the creation of uh, entire population already civilized, and that is because the creation of man was to serve a menial purpose. 
the gods were tired to taking to take care of their temples. They needed somebody who would take care of the temples, and therefore they created man. That was the purpose of the creation of man. And as I mentioned to you as well, um, the creation of man happened by mixing dirt to the blood of the slain dragon. So man is therefore half evil and half good in his essence. The one thing that these myths shared with the story of Genesis is specifically the idea of an image. In the ancient world, an image was believed to carry the essence of that which it represented. It is believed to carry the essence of that which it, is rep it, it represented. That is actually a very fascinating topic and one uh, of much confusion for our Protestant friends. Well, before I get into the confusion, let's dwell a little bit more on this notion that an image is carrying the essence of that which it represents. What does that mean? It means that an idol of a deity was not confused with the deity itself. So when the ancient made a statue of Marduk or Baal or any other gods, Greeks, uh, you know, Egyptians or Romans, they never thought that this statue was the god. That never crossed their minds. But they understood that through this image, the god executed or made manifest his power. So in other words, the image became a conduit through which the power of that god is expressed, can be attained, is achievable. And that's why that they offer sacrifices before these statues, because they knew that through this image, they were actually communicating with that god. Now, in our case, we use the same metaphor. We use the same metaphor. Right? We call it a video link. If um, you're using Skype and you see the sort of digitized image of the person you're talking to, you know that that image on the screen is not the person, but it is a faithful representation of that person. Whatever the image on the screen is saying is what that person is saying. Or when you watch a movie that your friend sent you, you know that the movie is not your friend. But the image in that movie is a faithful representation of your friend. Whatever that image says is what your friend said. As a matter of fact, you do not distinguish between the two. Right? You do not distinguish between It's the same thing. Same principle applies. And the reason why this is kind of a little bit confusing for our Protestant friends is because we Catholics use what? Statues. That's why they accuse us of idolatry. Because as usual, there is a part of the truth and a part of a lie mixed together. What is the truth? The truth is that we are creatures of flesh and blood. We rely on our senses to learn anything. Knowledge comes to us through the senses first. God knows that, and God wants us to rely on our senses to, in communicating with Him. 
That's why in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, if I remember correctly, he forbade the Israelites from making any statue of any of the gods. You shall not make any image before me. Right? And that's what most of our Protestant brethren will quote. See, it's written here in the Bible. You're not supposed to make any image. You make images, therefore you're idol- idol- idolaters. Well, not so fast, because in the same book, in chapter 35, the same God commands Moses to make the statues of two cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then later on, when he will command Solomon to build the temple, he'll command Solomon to have the image of a lion imprinted inside the temple. So, what's up, God? On one hand, no image. On the other hand, an image. Well, it makes complete sense once you understand the purpose behind it. Again, the Bible is a book of communication. It's a way of God talking to us in the context in which we live. In the first context, God was telling the Israelites who were addicted to the Egyptian gods, you're not going to make any of those images anymore. You're done. As a matter of fact, I'm going to force you to sacrifice the animals that represented those gods. That's why you will sacrifice a bull, and that's why you'll sacrifice an oxen, and that's why you'll sacrifice all these animals, because all of them represent Egyptian gods. You're going to sacrifice these to me, not because I need it, but because you need it to be weaned off your attachment to these demonic influences. And I would forbid you from sacrificing those animals which the Egyptians sacrificed to those gods. These you will deem unclean. I don't want you to touch them, because that's what you used to do. So it's a schooling in the faith. That's the whole purpose of the whole system that God put in place for them in the desert. It wasn't a absolute, an absolute for a restriction from having any statue whatsoever. So therefore, that's why he could actually c- command Moses to build the statue of two cherubims. Because guess what? In Egypt, you wouldn't find any temple dedicated to, cher- to cherubims where you go and sacrifice. That was safe. All right? So fast forward to the Catholic Church, we have statues. What do those statues represent? They represent these people who are in heaven, and we all know as Catholics that if we're standing in front of the statue of St. Anthony, we're not worshipping St. Anthony, and we're not talking to a statue, we're not adoring St. Anthony, we're just looking at a picture of a friend. Actually, some of us do carry pictures of saints in our wallet. They're family members. We're talking to them. We're one family. All right? So far, so good. But there is one element that is really difficult for our Protestant friends to understand. And that is the notion of a shrine. A shrine. When you have an official shrine, a place that is declared a shrine, what does that mean? What is the difference between a statue and a shrine and a statue that is not in a shrine? Anybody know? Dedicated. The statues are dedicated. Everything we have at the church is dedicated. Pardon? Statues here could have relics. Not really. Not necessarily. Not every saint burial is a shrine. It might carry a certain blessing, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, a gift. Yes, but not exactly. Yes. A shrine dedicated to Our Lady, such as Lourdes, for instance, or Fatima, or any shrine that is declared so, indicates that in that place, Our Lady is actually present. 
That's what it means. That's why you receive an indulgence if you go to those shrines. It is a place where, for instance, if you go to Lourdes, Mary is, in a sense, truly present there. Much more so than in a statue of hers here in the church. Now, that is a concept that even Catholics have a problem with. Why? Because it borders on idolatry. I just told you what is an image in the ancient world. It is a statue through which you talk to this deity. It is a, which, a way in which this deity manifests its power. And I just told you that in a shrine, if you go to Lourdes, it's a place where Mary is actually present. It gets really close, doesn't it? Because, as usual, the devil is really good at taking a good truth, a truth of God, and then twisting it around. Nonetheless, that is the truth of a shrine. That's why we go to shrines. And that's why they're different from any other place. Yes. And the shrine miracles happen, and that's why it becomes a shrine. Yes. Um, for instance, uh, uh, miracles are ways in which God manifests his will for a shrine to happen. in this place where may, mostly Our Lady appeared and asks for, for instance, a basilica to be built there, a church to be dedicated. And, uh, but not always. The church can declare a specific place, a shrine, and that means it is a place where effectively, in a, in a, in a very real sense, Our Lady is present. So it's extremely important, and it's very different from any other statue. She is present there. You can't see her, but she's there. I can't tell you exactly how this works. Because uh, uh, as far as I know, no shrine has been dedicated to me. So I don't know how it works. But I can tell you what the church teaches. And that is, in the shrine, in a real sense, without really knowing how, Mary is present. Much more so than in a picture that we've, where we venerate her, like the picture be, uh, behind on that wall, or the statue. Mary so has, Mary has more than one shrine, so then she's present in other shrines. Exactly. So Mary is present in all the shrines at the same time. Let's not worry about the mechanics. Let's God worry about it. Time and eternity work very differently. Yes. But not, not the substantial. Yes, very good point. That's where icons, for instance, in the East work precisely, and maybe even to a larger degree, the way statues work in the West. It's... It's a visual representation of that person. And through that medium, you can almost get in touch, in contact with this person. Right? So it's the mystical relationship that happens through the icon and to a certain degree through statues. Although the West doesn't have that mystical view as much as the East does with the icons. Um, but a shrine is a wholly different business. It is not a question of my subjective belief of what is there, it is that objectively Our Lady is present there. So visiting a shrine is a wholly different thing than just going to, you know, a, any given statue. Yes? Um, would that also account for the shrine we have here? No, not yet. As I said, uh, what does it count for the shrine that we have here? It, a shrine needs to be fully, officially declared as so by the church to be a shrine in that official capacity. Right? And so it, just, that doesn't, it doesn't happen right away, but it, it happens over time. So anyhow, my point is not to 
get us going on the shrine. My point I'm trying to bring to your attention is why sometimes our Protestant friends may be really confused with this whole Catholic business. Because on the one hand, they'll tell you, well, it's like idolatry. Well, to a point, yes, it, it looks like it is, because mechanically it works exactly the same. Why do, we, why do we touch a statue? Why do we kiss a statue? Why do we touch an icon? Why do we kneel before statues? Because we know that this is the image, the representation of the person that, is, that we see. Not only that, in the case of a shrine, the person is actually present. It's really hard for them to come to terms with these concepts and separate them from idolatry. Because the mechanics is the same, but the intent is vastly different. Right? And that all uh, comes from the concept of an image in the ancient world, which was actually um, effectively also used by God, as we're going to see. So, for instance, in uh, Mesopotamia and uh, the Enuma Elish, we read, The father of my lord the king is the very image of Baal. And interestingly enough, the word used for image is Salem, which is the root word for peace. Image, is the word used for image is actually Salem, which is the word used for peace. So when Jesus says, Peace be with you. My peace I give you. He really speaks almost in ancient, the, the, the way the words will resonate to an ancient is that I'm giving you my image. You're to be conformed to me. All right? So peace is not a thing that I give you. Right? Peace is, a, is actually a relationship between you and me where you will be conformed to me. You will be made in my image. That's why he says, my peace I give you. What does he say, my peace? Right? And, and, and um, also in the gospel, when the, the Pharisees come to him trying to trap him and ask him, the Pharisees actually and a, uh, and, um, and a Herodian come to him trying to trap him, says, uh, so shall we pay the taxes to Rome? And they're waiting, because the Herodians pay the taxes to Rome, and the Pharisees don't pay the taxes to Rome. And they're thinking, we've got him. If he says yes, pay the taxes, we, the Pharisees, will accuse him of being one who supports Rome. And if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, the Herodians will be on his case saying, hey, he's provoking seditions against Rome. We'll get him either way. And what does Jesus say? He says, give me a coin. Whose image is this inscribed on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. And then he answers somehow mysteriously, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. What is it? The coin. Give back to Caesar what is to Caesar's. The coin. And to God, what is God's? What does that part mean? Remember the question he asked. Whose image is inscribed on this coin. And they say, Caesar's. Right? Remember that Caesar considered himself to be what? A god. And he says, give back to this god what belongs to him. That piece of coin. And give back to God the image of God that belongs to him. Which is who? 
yourselves. You who are talking to me, you are to give yourselves to me. And that's why they got stumped. So, there are other sayings such as, um, The king, my lord, is the image of Baal. The king, lords of the lands, is the image of Shamash, which is the god of the sun. O king of the inhabited world, you are the image of Marduk. The interesting thing is that in the, in the Babylonian view of the image, only the king is the image of the God. Only the king. In Genesis, man, universally, is made in the image of God. Now, that is a fundamental departure of the view of man that, was seen, that, that you would find in any other cultures. The dignity of the human being is asserted ontologically, on the level of the being, not functionally, on the level of the function, of who, what position you're at. You're not an image of God because you're a king. You're an image of God because you are a man. All right? So in Egypt, the same concept is expressed in the name Tutankhamun, which means the living image of the god, Amun, and in the designation of Tutmos IV as the likeness of Re. So again, the idea that kings were made in the image of God, therefore there were gods themselves, were, was perpetuated throughout the centuries, all the way into France, where King Louis XIV called himself Le Roi Soleil, right, the sun king. Right? He, was, he was sort of the Microsoft of his time, and, and, and had a great marketing machine, and he knew how to market himself very well. Um, but but that's, that's the whole idea. But effectively, the Bible is saying something very different. Significantly, the kings raised statues of, of themselves in places where they wanted their authority asserted. And that's the work of tyrants. Tyrants do that everywhere. They raise statues where they want their authorities asserted. You see the statue and you think of the one behind the statue. So the image serves to enforce or to represent... Right, the one behind the image. Keep that in mind. Right? Here in the United States, we're more democratic. We don't put images of presidents everywhere. We just have signs of the IRS. It works the same. We're more institutional. Okay. So in Genesis 1.27, we see the emphasis on the likeness of man to God. Animals are made according to their own kind. Not man. Man is not said to be made according to his own kind. Man is said to be made in the likeness of God. You see the big difference between animal and man. So the whole business of kind was not there because somehow 4,000 years ago, right, Moses thought that in modern America we're going to fight over creationism versus evolution and that kind was really important so we can debate about it ad nauseum. The whole purpose of that word was specifically to indicate that animals are made according to their own image. But man is a wholly different creature. He is made not according to his image, but according to the image of God. Now, I want to say one word on the plural form, let us make man. I'll tell you right away that the fathers, be it St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, St. Ephraim... Um, Origin, St. Chrysostom, many of the fathers, and I, I can spend a whole hour quoting for you from them, saw in that let us made, make men the divine counsel. 
that God the Father, God the Son, God, God the Holy Spirit, sort of, so to speak, and here we are anthropomorphing God, right? Sort of they came together in a council and decided to make man in the image of God. Now, this would sound almost silly if it wasn't for the cross. God, having foreknowledge of everything, knew what man would do and knew what the salvation of man would require. And so hidden in that let us is the assent or the agreement or the acceptance of the second person of the Trinity to in time become a son of man and to die on the cross for us. And so all along, the second person of the Trinity knew and agreed and accepted to make man, even though they knew what was going to happen. Even though they knew what was going to happen. So, pardon? I said that the reason why it is seen as a divine council is because the, the three persons of the Trinity came together and agreed on the creation of man, even though they knew what man would do and what the cost of the of man's salvation would be. So God knew beforehand, God the Father knew beforehand, that He would have to offer His Son as a sacrifice to save man, and yet He went ahead and made that decision out of love. See, God's love is beyond our comprehension. It, it isn't something that can be comprehended in any way, shape, or form. It is beyond our comprehension. Um, because, because our sense of self-protection would dictate that, well, if you knew it's going to, you know, man is going to, you know, mess it up, why didn't you fix it before after you're God? Why didn't you do it so that man would never mess up? Right? There is a flaw in your plan since you let man mess up. Why? Because we equate perfection with self-preservation. We don't equate perfection with love. Love unto the cross. And God teaches us otherwise. And that's one of our biggest challenge and our biggest, if you will, source of, of suffering. That we see our failures, we see our lack of success as a sign of, of um, death, as a sign of incapacity that we're not able to do what we're supposed to do. That's what the world wants us to believe. God sees it completely otherwise. It isn't in our, he doesn't measure us by our successes. He measures us by our love. Um, the reason why we, we see that the, this plural form indicates divine counsel is because we see this let us elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, for instance, in Genesis 11:7, But again in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 where God, where Isaiah sees God as king and throne, surrounded by the seraphim and cherubim, and speaking in that council, and saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Send me. So the for us was used also in that reference, in that context of God um, essentially speaking in terms of a council. And that's why we cannot naturally infer from the text of Genesis that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't do that leap. 
You can't sit with a Jew and convince him just using natural reason that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not going to work. can't use that text as a proof text of the Trinity. All right? It is only through divine revelation that we come to understand this text in that light. What is then the purpose of the creation of man according to God's will? Why is God creating man? God says, let us create man according to our own image. In our image. In our image. We've said two things about the image. Number one, that through this image, you can actually talk to the one who this image represents. And number two, as we've seen in the case of the statues of idols, right? Or the statues of saints, in our case, where you effectively communicate with saints. Incidentally, when you're talking to a statue of an idol, who are you talking to? Pardon? Nobody? Yourself? A demon. Talking to a demon, right? There is no void in the spiritual realm. There's no empty space. There's no man's land in the spiritual realm. There's always a spirit present. It's always filled. It's only, the question is only which spirit this is. Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's, you'll find it in the book of Proverbs, for instance, and the book of Wisdom, where we say that the man makes the statue, and then he kneels before it, and he's talking to this thing which is dead. Right? Sort of, you know, why is he doing that? Yes, indeed, that particular piece of statue in and of itself is dead. No doubt about it. But when it is placed in a temple and sacrifices are being offered, it is invested by the power of a demon. All right? That's why the Egyptian ceremonial to the god Apis, the, the, the golden, you know, the golden um, calf, the reason why they built it was because it was an image of the god Apis and his liturgy was an orgy. And they were addicted to it. So there are definite demonic powers behind it who want to move men away from God. Incidentally, what do all these gods look like? By and large, in Egyptian animals. Why? Because man was created to rule over animals and the demons rejoice in making man worship animals. All right? It's always the inversion of the truth. And that's why if you, for instance, read C.S. Lewis, you read the series of Narnia, you see when you're in Narnia, all these animals right, are extremely devoted or show extreme devotion to man because they know that they were created for man. So, as I said, there's these two reasons, right? Number one is that through this image, you're communicating with the author of the image. And number two, through the image, the author of that image asserts his authority. As when you put a statue somewhere and you know that that expresses the authority of the, the person behind the statue. Well, it's no different with man. Man serves these two functions. When you speak to a man, you're speaking to God. Every man is made in the image of God. That's why when Jesus says, when you call your brother Raka, a very strong word, which we kind of translate, mistranslate most of the time because we don't have an equivalent, right? Sort of idiot or stupid or whatever. You are, you are, um, um, 
you, your punishment will be very great because you're speaking to the, to, the, to the creature which is made in the image of God. That's why when you speak to a man, you're speaking to God. The second reason is that God exercises his authority over all the created world through men. Man has this delegated authority over the entire planet in the name of God. In the name of God. This is why, for instance, when you um, read in um, Genesis 9, chapter um, 9, verse 6 and 7, we're going, we're going to get there, but uh, in anticipation, it's, it's good to point that out. When God renews the covenant with Noah, all right, he, um, he gives his blessing to the human race and then declares murder to be the consummate crime. Murder, the consummate crime, precisely because man is made in the image of God. So when you murder a man, you are effectively committing a crime against God. You understand that? That is the foundation of the dignity, the inalienable dignity, the dignity of man that no man can take away. And that is, every human being, from conception to natural birth, has that dignity, because every human being is made in the image of God. We need to understand that a little bit more. Hold on three questions. I'd like to, make, I'd like to finish this point because this is important. This is why also the church will never take away the death penalty. Because it is precisely the second, the second way in which man is made an image of God that must be exercised. I told you that the image of man being made an image of God means two things. Number one, when you speak to man, you're speaking directly to God. And number two, through man, God exercises his authority. And that authority includes authority over life. The life of a man. Therefore, the death penalty is always, in a fundamental sense, morally justified. Now, the way you apply it and the context in which you apply it and the reason why you apply it, those are all debatable. Those are all, this, can be discussed and argued. And that's why, for instance, John Paul II said, in a modern judicial system where you can contain criminals to give them another chance, the death penalty is not necessary. But in other contexts where you can't have this kind of judicial system, the death penalty can't be necessary. We have a sort of a false compassion that occults God's justice and deforms the image of God in man. And we need to be very, very clear about it. Right? The mercy of God never takes away his justice. And the mercy of God never takes away the need for justice. The mercy of God is his way of extending his grace to us when his justice says that we don't deserve it. That's his mercy. So understand these principles so that you're not shaken or, or confused about the teaching of the Catholic Church. What John Paul II said was not that the death penalty is now abrogated and the church is against it. It's not true. It will never be true because of the principles just presented to you. 
what he said is that practically speaking, in modern societies, we may not necessarily apply the death penalty because there are so many errors, there are ways in which it's, you know, it's not necessarily uh, done in the most just way. But it doesn't mean that you will never ever apply death penalty because it is actually in scripture. Read the book of the Acts of the Apostles and see how St. Peter condemns a man and a woman to death and they die that same day. All right? And if you have questions about that particular subject, if you have you know, concerns, we can take those later. You had a question? Oh, good question. If you're, ask, you're asking this question, a person in, is murdered, yeah. is that person, would that person go to hell or to heaven? Yeah. Because they've been murdered. Yeah. Neither. So the mode in which you die almost always has no relevance to your eternal destiny unless you offered your life for your brother. Unless you made a willing sacrifice of your life. But the fact that you die in a car accident or 9-11 is effectively the signpost that says your life ends here. Now let's look at, the, let's look at your book. Yeah. Once you die, regardless of the mode of dying, regardless of the mode of dying, whether you're dying by cancer or you're killed or an earthquake or in a car accident, those in themselves are irrelevant. You're judged according to your own work. Right? Now, you can make of your death a great offering to God. Right? But that takes preparation, lifetime preparation for this. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. But the mode of dying is almost irrelevant in and of itself. Um, so, for instance, let's say that Hitler didn't kill himself, but he was executed. Or somebody shot him, murdered him. Does this mean he goes to heaven? Now, the killing of any other creature, even wantonly, is not murder. The killing of any other creature, even wantonly, is not murder. Only the killing of man is murder. Why? Because man is made in the image of God. And only man is made in the image of God. Alright? That is why, again, in principle, there's absolutely nothing wrong in using animals in lab experiments. Even if that means incurring pain to the animal. If it is necessary for saving human lives, it is a good. If there are ways to avoid it, that should be used. If you can do it using computer simulation, using other ways, great. You should do it. That is part of our, um, if you will, of our care for nature and doing that which is uh, necessary. Right? We don't... Um, inflict pain on a creature out of pleasure. That's a moral sin. All right? But having, performing experiments on, on lab, or on, 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 on rabbits or rats or animals, if that means that you're going to be able to devise ways to save the lives of human beings, it is perfectly and morally justifiable. We just live in a culture that's become so morally weak and confused that affirmations such as these are seen as cruel. But the real cruelty is to deny man his dignity. That is the greatest of all cruelty. Yes? Oh, good point. Somebody outside the church may use that towards stem cell research, especially embryonic. No, because life begins at conception. Therefore, when you are actually using embryos, which are human beings endowed with the same dignity as you and I,
to perform a research and kill them in that process, that is murder. To save no, you cannot kill a man to save another man. That is not acceptable. Right? Because every man is made in a dignity, uh, in the same, share the same equal dignity, and therefore you are not allowed to murder a man in order to save another man. Murder is not, thou shall not kill in all circumstances. The other fundamental moral principle of the church is that you cannot use evil means to achieve a good. You cannot use evil means to achieve a good. I'll give you an example. You just watched a movie and you know that your friend would really benefit from it. You take that movie, you make a copy, you give it to your friend. All right? That is morally wrong. Your aim is to console your friend or distract him from his pain or grief. The means through which you're doing it is wrong. It's called stealing. It's not acceptable. And God is not one to look kindly upon us if we are actually using evil means to achieve a good. That is not acceptable. He himself refused that. Because this is what the devil put before him. And this is what Barabbas wanted to do. Every step of the way, every action you perform must be morally good. That is God's way. And it is justified by human dignity. It's very important. Yes. Ah, what about war? Can war be justified? Um, war can be justified. In fact, it is justified in scripture. Uh, especially defensive war. If you're being attacked unjustly, you must. It's your duty to defend your country. Why? Two fundamental reasons. And I'll bring it down to a smaller scale level. Right? Something we can deal with better. Self-defense. I just said in case of defense. I'm not going to bring it back to a case of a self-defense. A man enters your house. What is your duty? What must you do? Not what can you do. What you might consider doing, what must you do? Correct. Use the necessary level of force to make sure he hurts no one. Why? Why is it the necessary level of force? What's hidden in that sentence? Correct. Very good. If you use too much force, you're not giving him a chance to repent from that. And if you use too little force, you may not be able to stop him. At heart, there is therefore God's justice that commands you to do... to. to to protect your family. And there is God's mercy that commands you to limit the punishment that this man will incur. It's not just about your family, it's about him. All right? Likewise, in the defensive war, the same principles apply. Sometimes an offensive war is justified because you're trying to stop someone from committing a greater harm. Although that can be a lot more iffy. Right? And you have to look at it case by case, and it's sometimes very difficult for us men to judge the real worth of the war, right? So, but I'm talking to you in terms of the moral principles. Most of the time we muddle the issue because we're weak and we are fa we, we're fallen and we submit to so many different temptations, right? Things get really messed up. But those are the fundamental principles that tell us how to conduct ourselves morally. Yes? Were the Crusades moral? Again, as I said, case-by-case case basis. 
Can I say in a blanket statement all of the crusades were moral? Certainly not. Can I say in a blanket statement all of the crusades were immoral? Certainly not. There are certain cases where some actions were actually morally valid and others were not. So, for instance, many of you may not know that, but the reason that impelled Europe to move on crusades was the fact that the Shiite empire that rose in Egypt went on a rampage and destroyed a thousand churches. So there was a fundamental reason why this happened, besides economy, even though our cynical um, modern times tend to look only, uh, put, put worth only on the dollar. But so, it's really difficult, it requires a lot of wisdom to come up with a proper judgment on these things. A lot of prayer. And it's not something that can be done in a glib, like yes, no. Much more complex than that. Yes. Yeah. Why do we pray for our leaders? They're flawed human beings that need God's judgment. Yes. But what, what, what else? Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, our leaders are in grave danger to go to hell. For if power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's an act of charity to pray for them. Just as we pray for our priests and our bishops. It isn't just about us. It is also for the salvation of their souls. These are not positions that one should take lightly. And typically, a wise man, when offered these positions, would do the only reasonable thing. Run. <laughs> and if you have in you the temptation for power, run quicker and run to Mary. You need her. Right? You need her. All right. Now, in Genesis, 5, chap Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 through 3, we see that the image of God in Adam is likened to the image of Adam in Seth, his son. So therefore, to be made an image of God means these two things. We have the capacity to serve in the place of God. We are his representatives. And number two, we can be and act like him. And that is true of all men. All men are created with the same equal dignity. So examination of conscience should start right there. Do I have in my heart hatred for any group of men? I hate the Jews. I hate the Arabs. I hate the black. I hate the white. I hate the, the, the Chinese, the Indians, the Spanish, the this, the that. If I have these thoughts in my heart, it translates automatically in the following corollary. I hate you, God. I hate you. When you come to me in the guise of the person that I decided to hate, I hate you. Because they are your representative. And when you come to me under this guise, I hate you. But when you come to me under my guise, I love you. God doesn't do very well with conditional love. So any, any um, sense in our heart of hatred towards any group of people is not from God. It is from the devil. It is from the devil. And you need to pray so that God may purify your heart. Because I will assure you, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven hating man. In a very practical sense, you may find a whole bunch of them up there. What are you going to do? You're kind of stuck, aren't you? So man is a mystery. Man is a mystery. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 357, puts it this way. 
being in the image of God, the human individual possesses the dignity of a person. The dignity of a person. Um, I'm going to spend two minutes on this concept of person, although I have enough material to cover 45 minutes. Well, actually, an hour and a half. So I was just going to spend two minutes. I need you to understand something. Because so much of what we have today has been given to us by the church, and we do not even recognize it, nor give her thanks for it. Do you, un- do you realize that the concept of personhood, a person, did not exist before the church came to be? You will not find, if you study the Greeks, if you study Plato, even Aristotle, if you study the Hebrew writing, if you study the, any of the writings, pick the one you want, you will not find the concept of a person. It doesn't exist. It only came to being as the church had to struggle with the following question. Who is Jesus Christ? So first they had to deal with the notion that he is true God and true man. What does that mean? How do you get these two together? He's divine and he's human. Two natures, two wills. In one what? In one person. That took 300 years of the brightest minds to come up with the concept of person. Two natures, two wills, human and divine. There is a big difference because God is being, right? But God is a divine person, right? We are a human person. What is Jesus Christ? Right? So it's not enough to say being because Right? And as a matter of fact, we are not a being. We are effectively, man is not a being. Man is a person. God is a being. Why? Because we are coming to be. We are in the process of being. What, what is a moment of happiness? A, a moment of sheer joy? When do you experience a moment of sheer joy? You experience a moment of, 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 of sheer joy when you are in touch with your being, when you have a sense of fundamental existence, we say time suspends itself. Time doesn't exist. What do we mean by that? We are. What does that mean? We are getting a glimpse of what God has reserved for us to divinize us, to turn us, to turn our nature into His and make us. Be. That's joy, is to be. So we are not yet. We are and we are not. So contrary to what Hamlet thought, the question is not to be or not to be. The question is how to be. (laughs) Really. But we cannot fault him. He had a couple of issues. (laughs) All right. So a person. So what is a person? Um, Let me give you sort of a technical definition. Um, This is how the Psalm 8 sees man. It's talking to God, and the Psalm says to God, You crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And all the human glory on earth is summarized, however, with the following. Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. 
You've probably heard this uh, responsorial song. Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. What is the name of God in all the earth? Okay, do me a favor. Raise your finger. Turn it around. Point at you. You're the name of God. You're his image. Lord, our, our Lord, how excellent is your name throughout the earth. That's the dignity that God endowed the human being with. Now, I need to talk to you about one more thing. What is man? God made man in his image. What does that mean? Well, oh yeah, right, I caught, I caught that. What is a person? I told you, man is a person. What is a person? The, a person is the individual substance of a rational nature. You're glad you asked, didn't you? <laughs> it's the individual substance of a rational nature. Individual, meaning what? Individuated, separate. Substance, right, comes from what? Substantial, subsisting, existent, right? Individuated, existing, nature of, of a rational nature. What does that mean? Rational nature. See, the key is the, the word rational here. Uh, a, a dog, your dog, Rufus, is not a person. Right? Rufus has no personhood. Even though we say he's got personality. Right? No. Dogs, cats, even chihuahua dogs, sorry to say, don't have personality. They have attributes. They have traits. They have animal traits. But they don't have personality. You see how, how this culture is so subversive? It doesn't attack the faith directly. It doesn't need to. All it has to do is to make sure that the young generation is unable, is unable to use more than three words. Like you know what I know? What you, like you know what I mean? The lack of vocabulary is a lack of faith. Because we don't know how to use the words appropriately, we cannot think clearly, and therefore we cannot come to the truth. So we accept to be lazy, and we accept to use words haphazardly, because we do not love God enough to force our brains to think in, 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 a, in, a, in a manner that is disciplined, and to be constantly, constantly watchful over what is planted in our brain. We like weeds. Like, you know what I mean, and I know, are weeds of the brain. They eat your brain live. And it's enough. As soon as this happens, truth is occulted. Becomes difficult to express, to be shared. The light of man is dimmed. And you must protect against it. Because the Catholic faith, the Catholic understanding of truth requires... A proper way of expressing it. You don't have to express it in this lofty way as the scholastics did. But you still have to use even simple ways to speak about it. Jesus spoke very simply. But he used his words properly. You never hear Jesus say, like you know what I mean? Love your enemy, like you know what I mean? And we are to be made in his image. Alright, so animal, the concept of an animal is to be distinguished from a beast. Animal comes from the word animate meaning able to move, movement, all right? Different from inanimate, which in the ancient included trees and shrubs and everything else. That is, things that are unable to move. So that's what animal means. So when we say man 
is a rational animal, we do not mean man is a rational beast. Although in our modern times, that's what the implication is. We're kind of a little bit over the monkeys and the elephants. No, 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 no. There's a fundamental difference. All right? What is rational then? Rational from reason, from the French, raison, ratio, from the Latin, reor, to think. Right? So we are, we are animate creatures who are capable of thought. Now, intellect is different from reason. Intellect is different from reason. Intellect is the intuitive faculty. It's the intuitive faculty. Where we grasp things intuitively. We know them. How does this happen? By the exercise of reason, you can come to know things intuitively. You've done them long enough, you know how to do them. You remember those, those, uh, those uh, Rubik's Cube contest? See these kids sitting there looking at the Rubik's Cube? You know what a Rubik's Cube is, right? Everybody knows that, right? And you see these kids looking at this thing, and then they get blindfolded, right? And then somebody says, go. And the guy goes, 15 seconds. Got it in place. How did he do that? It became intuitive, right? So the level of intuition is a good thing, but it comes through wisdom. What is therefore the greatest mark of wisdom? It isn't one who acts slowly. It is one who acts very, very quickly because he's become intuitive. But the reason, therefore, is the discursive or inferential faculty. Well, you know, in order to get there, I have to do this, and then I have to do that, and then this has to happen. This process is the reasoned process. We have that. This is how we think. Angels and God and us are all, all have intellect. But we are the only ones who have reason. God and the angels don't make use of reason. They're not like us. They're intuitive. Okay, what does that mean? It means that if you were to give an angel all the principles of mathematics, or let's say the principles of geometry, as soon as the angels lay eyes on these principles, he has derived in that very instant all the mathematical truths that could be derived from these principles. Intuitively. We, on the other hand, must make use of our reason to come to these truths. We're much slower. St. Thomas Aquinas says, therefore, reason is the defect of human intellect. Reason is a defect of human intellect because we have to be able to make use of it to, to attain to truths compared to angels. This is why, by the way, the demons are not redeemable because when they made their decision to be separated from God, they did it intuitively. They had all the elements they needed to make that decision. They knew what that meant, and they went ahead and did it. So there's no redemption of, you know, angels. Demons are forsaken. They're damned forever. This is what man is, and this is how he functions. And you can imagine, imagine if you had to to take an angel and force him to go through reason. It'd be like taking one of you guys and forcing you to go through the steps that a three-years-old go through to figure out what 2 plus 2 is equal to. 2 plus 2. 
Seven? No. Mm. Two? No. Five? No. You know how painful this is? Right? Imagine how it is for an angel to be able to go through this process. Now think about that for a second and think about how painful this would be for God to go through this process, to force himself to use reason. We're sinful, fallible men arguing with him. That's why we call it the condescension of God becoming man. That's why it's a sign of such great humility on God's part to be willing to become man. It isn't just because he went from being God to becoming man. It is because throughout all his life, all his life, he has to put up through this it's like, you know, you go from, um, you know, a, a T1 to a phone connection, modem, 3600 baud. Imagine how painful this is. Well, this is infinitely more painful for God to be able to, and yet he did it. Do you understand now why in Catholic circles we value silence? Because silence is intuitive, not discursive. Silence, the silent adoration of God, is divine. It's the divine discourse. Compared to the human one where I, I'm doing this all, you know, you might be he- tired of hearing my voice. But in the house of Bethlehem, under the roof of Mary and Joseph, there weren't much talking going on. Because they didn't need it. There was lots of loving silence. And that is why St. Joseph, who is the greatest saint in the church after Our Lady, does not speak a word in Scripture. He is the silent saint because he is the greatest. And there is no true faith in us if we do not cherish and love and seek silence. So I tell you right now, you guys, you're listening to rock and roll, good luck. Good luck making it to heaven listening to rock and roll. Not going to happen. Not that easy. God can do whatever. Miracles and all that. Not rock and roll. If you can't live without noise, zig zig boom boom, zig zig boom boom, zig zig boom boom, you're going to have a hard time in heaven. Get used to silence. Spend 15 minutes of your day in silence. Don't try to talk to God. Read scripture, close your eyes, and let the Holy Spirit guide you through a meditation He wants you to see. Don't be too active. And there you're going to face your limitations straight on, because you'll see how difficult it is. In three minutes, you're jittery. Your mind has wandered all over the place, playing ping pong on you. 4,000 thoughts are coming at you from all directions. You can't even concentrate for two seconds. It's a good exercise, worthwhile exercise. You're showing God you love Him if you cultivate the practice of silence. Man finds his greatest dignity in being silent before God. When we are in heaven, though, when we are in heaven, the beatific vision will be as intuitive as our own consciousness is to us right now. Because in heaven, we're going to be on the same level as the angels. That's what Jesus meant when he said, in heaven, you shall be like angels. 
he doesn't mean that in heaven you lose your gender. You see, he's being a man and a woman. He meant your, your intuitive grasp of the truth and your ability to see God as he is intuitively will be given you. Something we cannot even comprehend right now. But just as you have an intuitive grasp of the fact that you are, you don't have to sit down, start a mathematical proof, theorem, I am, proof. Right? Seven pages later, QED, I prove I am. You don't do that. You know you are without even thinking about it. That's called intuitive knowledge. In heaven, the beatific vision will be as intuitive as this knowledge. Because we are made in the image of God. CCC 356. Of all visible creatures, only man is able to know and love his creator. He is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. Animals were willed for our own sake. But we are willed for our own sake as well. But also, and he alone is called to share by knowledge and love in God's own life. It was for this end that he was created, and this is the fundamental reason for his dignity, that we are to be divinized. We are to be called to share in the divine life of God. Not that we become God like him, but our nature shall be completely transformed once we're in heaven. That's why, why? because he willed us to be made in his own image. That's what it means. That's what it means, and that's why we must always cherish life. And that is why abortion is such a heinous crime, and this is why uh, contraception is such a heinous sin, because it denies, it disfigures the image of God in us. And I'll come back to that when we get to this business of men and women. So um, I have a few minutes for questions. Yes, the question is, well, St. Paul says to slaves, be obedient to your masters. Therefore, if the church was in control of the world, we still have slavery today. What St. Paul says is that when you are a slave, okay, it is far more expedient for your own salvation to gain heaven through obedience than it is to revolt. Right? He does not imply that he thinks that slavery is an ideal social system. He is not writing being concerned about social justice. He is writing being concerned about Christians' slave and talking to them about their own salvation in a specific context. We shouldn't take things out of context and just generalize outright to you know, reach some absurd conclusions. Right? The church actually fought slavery historically very, very strongly. Right? But in that context, the point is to help slaves, Christians, attain heaven by imitating Christ who became slave for all of us. All right? Yes. Make man in our image. So in the literal sense, it really means a royal hour, that God is speaking in a sort of... Um, the, the text is really highlighting the importance of that statement. It's very important to God. As a matter of fact, in the whole text, this is the only place where the, word, the verb bara create is used three times to reinforce. Remember in Hebrew 3, the importance of the 3, to reinforce how important it was for God to create man. Man is precious in God's eye. That's on the literal sense. On the spiritual sense, and Augustine will tell you that the soul of man is Trinitarian. Because it is made in the image of the Trinity. 
in the spiritual sense, yes, but not in the literal sense. So when the author wrote, he wasn't saying, aha, the Trinity spoke. He was not aware of the Trinity. No, the question is, was there any teaching from our Lord or any in the, in the New Testament about against slavery? No, because, because Jesus did not come for social reforms. He came to save us from sin. And he knew that if we were to be saved from sin and live in grace, the church, the church, right? The church will torque the world and make the world be a better place. But he had no illusions on this final state of the world. All right? That's why he never really spoke about social reforms. He wasn't a social reformer. That was not his main purpose. He knew that if he were to give us the life of grace, we will be able to take things in, in hand and then bring about social justice, which is a great part of the teaching of the church. Is it intuitive that slavery is wrong? No, it's not intuitive that slavery is wrong. It is... Um, there is no such thing as, if you will, um, instinctive moral truth. Moral truth must be formed, but it is formed only according to right, to the, to, to right reason, which means by the grace of God. That's what I was saying earlier. God gives us His grace. Through His grace, we are led to the truth. The truth forms our conscience by reason and by repeated studies and passing on this truth and living it in culture, the truth becomes intuitive. But in and of itself, it is not intuitive. Not at all. Yes. No, no. Murder, not killing a man. Murder is a special case of killing a man. Enemy. See? Correct. Not quote, unquote. Enemy. But it's still another man. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. That's what I said earlier. We, can't just war. we cannot judge war um, in, a, in a sort of a blanket fashion. Unfortunately, we cannot do that. In principle, war is never a good thing. That's the principle. However, war can be morally justified and required when we must defend against an evil. So war against the Nazi was required. It was justified. The means of the war may not always be justified. But the principle was that you have to stop this evil, just as you must stop someone who enters your house. And if that means killing the person to protect the child, you must do it. If you do not, right, you've committed an immoral act. You have to apply as much force as necessary to stop him. Hopefully, you don't have to resort to, to, to that final act. But if you have to, you, you must. It's why? Because of the act of charity. Because if you prevent that man from killing the child, you may prevent him from going to hell. Whereas if you let him kill the child, you may be condemning him to hell, which is a far worse crime than physical murder. Everything is in proportion. Do you understand? Yeah. So war and the, the, the social teaching of the church on war has always been the same. War is never to be encouraged. War is never something we do willingly or joyfully or happily or simply because we're bored. Sometimes war is required to stop an evil. Most of the time, unfortunately, war is really immoral. But again, we cannot, out of impulse, put a blanket statement of all wars. Because that then would um, effectively put, some, put a limit on God's justice. Because in Scripture, and you will see it, God commands the, the Jews to actually go on war. And not only that, but in specific instances, He commanded them to 
go and kill an entire, an entire group of people. And he explicitly commanded them to kill men, women, children, leave no one alive. So if we take on the tact that all wars are immoral, we are going to have to really deal with this text, and we are going to find it very difficult. So we need to understand things in their proper context. Fair? Yes. Yeah, the, no, the gift of integrity is not at all like the intuition of the angels. Integrity is simply, I mean, not simply, integrity, the gift of integrity indicates the proper ordering and the proper discipline of all men's, of fac- men's faculty. Everything was ordered in man. There was no disorder. He still was required to think things through. He couldn't grasp everything into, uh, intuitively. All right? And we'll see it in the discourse in the garden. Why are you hiding? Because I saw you coming. How did you know? This whole discourse is rational. It wasn't intuitive. So man never possessed, even in, in his, beatific, not beatific, but, but in his original state, the same gift as the angels. Correct, yes. It is a very grave sin, and we're going, we're going to go through it. But still, man did not grasp the full consequences, right? whereas the angels did. Right? The angels did. This is why, in their case, there is no redemption Whereas in ours, there's always, because man, even in the garden, was ignorant. For instance, man did not understand the purpose of that tree. Right? He didn't know what the purpose of the tree was. Right? So there was ignorance on man's part, which makes him, um, um, which, which basically gives him a chance to be saved. Whereas angels had no ignorance. That's the difference. Yes. Right. The question is, therefore, if you know of a person did a great evil, must you pray for the soul of this person? And what if you really dislike this person? You have a fundamental dislike for this person. Should you pray for him? Let me clarify a couple of things. Number one, when in the, our Father, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive to those who trespass against us, hmm? that does not mean, let's say somebody did you wrong. Somebody did a grave thing against you. And you pray this prayer. You get to that point. Does this mean you should feel joy and elation and happiness when you think about this person? Is this prayer about the control of your emotions? Not at all. Nothing to do with it. You're, you might be very upset. You might grit your teeth. You might still feel anger and being all those emotions. But it's an act of your will. That you say, I will to forgive this person, even though everything in me says otherwise. That's what he's asking for. That's a sacrifice that you're making. The fact that you're feeling all these things is precisely an immolation. You're laying down yourself and your sense of satisfaction and need that you have, and rightfully so, to feel that justice has been done. And you're saying, I'm not asking for this. I'm asking that I want to forgive him. I want to forgive this person. So if nothing else, when we go through these things, it's a great exercise on our part to force ourselves specifically to think about these people, whomever they may be, with whom we have issues. Because it's an exercise of charity. It doesn't mean you have to go and hug them, but it means that you show God that you're willing to set aside even your own feelings and your own sense of justice out of love, not for them, because you can't, you can't love them, but out of love of him, right? So, as he did on the cross, right? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And they were committing the greatest crime of it all, right? 
Yes. Yes, why? Wait, wait, wait. Very good point. Every father, every mother here, you all agree, right? We all would like to sacrifice ourselves instead of our children. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we're selfish. God the Father is not. Yes. That's the fundamental difference. God the Father is not. He gave the best. Okay. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? You, 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 you're asked this question, what do you do? The first thing you do not do is wait to come to Bible study to ask me. <laughs> I mean, you know, I should start charging for those questions. That's the first thing you don't do. The first thing you do, you go to Google and you say, why do we need the Holy Spirit? Or you go to newadvent.org or you go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church you ask those questions, and voila, you have the answer. Because the Holy Spirit is? Yes, but, but? Counselor. What did Jesus say? It is, it is good, it is that I go so that I may send you the Advocate. The Advocate. That's the only lawyer you'll ever need, the Holy Spirit. All right? All the other lawyers will charge you too much. He's free. <laughs> You need the Holy Spirit because He's the one guiding you while preserving your freedom in making the right decisions. He preserved the life of grace in your soul. Right? So therefore, every one of us cannot consider himself to be Christian unless he or she has a true devotion and personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. We, our faith is not Christocentric. Our faith is Trinitarian. We have a personal relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yes. Why God knowing everything He knew, why didn't He do anything to stop it? Because, as I said earlier, God doesn't measure the success of His creation through the perfection of the behavior of the creature. He measures it through the cross, which is the summit and glory of creation. And that's what's so puzzling for us, because we would never do it this way. We would be tyrants. See? We turn ourselves into tyrants to make sure everybody does what they're supposed to do. Right? Why? Because our ego is at stake. God has no ego. That is a mystery. That's the mystery of God's love. And it's also what we call the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of sin. We're going to talk about that. All right. God bless you. Let's finish with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.